Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. I'm Brian McCain. We have decided to start getting back into the studio a lot more because so much is going on. And one of the things we hear about all the time is that our listeners and our community, you guys just need to know more what's happening. And a lot is happening right now. So one of the the things that we've noticed lately is that everybody's working on their bills a lot earlier in the year than we've seen in years past. Yeah, I'm sure they always work on them early and have an idea. But um, I've heard from a couple organizations that, you know, they they already have their bills lined up and their legislative priorities. Whereas traditionally in the past, I think they would go around right before Thanksgiving. I think they would do it after, you know, they timed it right. So it was after an election. So they could go meet with everybody and say, Hey, here's what we're working on. This is what we want to see. This is what we don't want to see. But it sounds like, um, from multiple organizations that I'm involved with that, um, they, they're pretty much, they know what they're going to do already. And they're kind of like, okay, well you could come talk to us, but we already have a plan. So you all know we've been talking about it a lot, the Academy, um, the Leadership Policy and Governance Academy. We finished that up last month um, in July, and one of the requirements – and so this was a really big deal for us – you know, we, it was really cool to hear from all the fellows what mattered most to them and, you know, what their big, their big takeaways were from it. From where I'm sitting, what you've got in your hand right now was the biggest, some of the biggest takeaway. And the reason why is one of the requirements for the academy is that, um, every fellow has to write and submit a bill. Um, this was, I thought this was a really big ask when we said that we wanted to do this. But part of the reason that I wanted to do a really big ask was uh, we see so many of the bills, and, and I've said it a thousand times on the show, but I'll say it again. December 5th, every Colorado legislature legislator um, will submit their bills, um, and they get to submit up to five bills. So what's interesting is um, – they they submit their bills and then the session starts in um, about six weeks later from that deadline and that's how the session goes. Every year, about seven hundred and fifty bills get introduced and five hundred about five hundred bills um, actually pass. The one of the trends we've seen in the last few years, and one of the reasons, honestly, we wanted to have the academy, is because we see a lot of bills that legislators introduce that aren't necessarily about Colorado or even the regions um, that they're living in, but they've got or that they're representing. But they've got these five bills; they're going to submit them. That's part of their job, and. We need to have more of an input from the community. Yeah. And so this was why we did this. We actually, um, so tell us a little bit about how you set this up, because this was a really big ask. When I tell people that, their eyes get kind of big. So um, it, it's actually kind of simple. Um, you know, with every advocacy group at the state and federal to a point, 
um, they set up their legislative priorities. So, um, for instance, the UVC, the last meeting, we sit down and they have a legislative committee and lobbyists and stuff, and and, um, they say, okay, here's the – basically what we're advocating for, what we want to see, and that's our legislative priority. Action 22 kind of does something similar, um, but we're so widespread, we can't just focus. You know, with the UBC, it's easy. It's just veterans' issues. So it's like more funding, better care, you know, grant programs, whatever. Um, Another organization on, say, homelessness and unhoused, their priority is, again, it's going to be we want to see more funding, we want to see some legislation that does this, that, blah, blah, blah. Action 22, it's a little bit different because we have 22 counties with a million different priorities that are very unique to the areas and the regions that that split up our footprint. So um, what how we laid this out was we walked them through how a bill's written and um, it's really simple. Like we've heard that sometimes it's sketched on a napkin, just two sentences or one sentence on a napkin. They send it over to the staff and they'll see, and you know, they craft the bill, send it to them, make sure that's what they want to see and take care of the wording. So we tasked the people going through um, to create um, some legislation or a, a legislative idea uh, that would positively impact their community, their um, who they work for, their government, if they're a county commissioner or if they're part of a nonprofit, something directly tied to that with a, a good impact. Um, but what this really did was kind of set up the legislative priority for the Action 22 area because everybody that went through this academy was from all over the region, all over southern Colorado, even Denver, a couple for, from Denver that I always give a hard time to. But um, – I don't look at this as much as them creating a bill. I look at this as the legislative priorities of our region more, more than not. Um, and they did it in a bill form. So we had them, you know, create a title summary and then add some details to it. They did um, a few people actually wrote it out in bill format, but um, what we really wanted to see was a good title and, and a good summary for this. So, um, I guess we can start going through them. Well, let me let me tell you why I was really excited about this. Besides the fact that this these are homegrown bills, um, we heard. <laughs> I'm going to complain for just a second. So some of the bills that we see come out. I uh, I was told um, earlier this week on uh, we I was in a meeting and I was told that one of the bills that will be introduced this year, and this is not from us, is um, a bill that would prevent. Uh, gas-fired outdoor anything, so fire pits, grills, anything like that, you, you won't be able to use gas. This is what the bill would, would do. Um, I wish I was surprised or um, even even confused that that would be a bill, um, and it made me want to, like, shove somebody into the snow, but, uh, there's bills that they, I guess they just can't think of anything else to come up with. They can't think of anything else that they need to do, um, besides determine whether or not you can have an outdoor fire pit or a gas grill. And it's just the most ludicrous stuff. And I guess after five, 500 bills every year, they think they're, they're running out of things, um, that are meaningful to talk about. So I don't know who's going to do that bill. I don't know when it is, but um, I will be, if that bill does uh, get introduced, I will, <laughs> I'll be making a lot of fun of everybody. Somebody's really not going to like me um, after that. But this well, set of bills was really very thoughtful and 
I was I was impressed. I thought they were they were really good. And we've already had some people. There's some bills that you haven't included in this packet, right? Because yeah, some people there, have already wanting to do those. There, there's a couple. There's one I left in um, that CCI is kind of picking up, but. Um, these ideas for legislation, uh, there are a few that actually I, I worked with some of the organizations and they're, they're putting in their lobbying package that uh, will probably go through. Um, Tony Haas, Commissioner Haas from uh, Los Animas County in Trinidad area, you know, he had a great idea, but it was kind of funny when he brought it up. It was, um, for anybody that doesn't know, Colorado split up into three different VA areas and, and different visions. Um it gets confusing. It's not like a normal federal organization where you have one federal region and then there's the next one. The VA has vision. So it's similar to a federal region. Um, but then within those there's healthcare systems. So it's like the West slope is its own healthcare system. The front range is its own healthcare system, but then the vision cuts off and the healthcare region and system cuts off in Los Animas County. So they're actually part of New Mexico. The West slope is part of a different one, but also Southern Colorado on the West slope is part of the New Mexico one. So if you can imagine it creates a communication problem, um, commissioner Haas, was asking for some sort of funding for education to go between these because you have veterans that are in one system that can't talk to the other. Um, they also have Medicaid, Medicare, and, it, and the Medicaid doesn't go over state lines. So if Medicaid's a supplemental insurance, they have to go to Albuquerque. How does that work? And there's ways to fix it, but it's a mess. Um, that was something we were already working on, and the VA is doing their best working on that Um as well. And I told him, and so we just kind of rolled in what he was already asking for and advocating for him. Like this is actually happening, but this helps. So we can, we can get this in front of them. Um, there's another one on, uh, I think it's from Ryan and I will not say their names as I read these, cause I don't want to get anybody in trouble from the organization. Right. But, right. So we'll um, use first names, but that's um, it. Yeah, we won't even use except for Tony's. Uh, yeah, except for Tony's. But his, his is Tony a Haas, yeah. very non-controversial bill, and they are working to fix it. Um, it. It's just what happens when you get too much stuff government mixed in. Um, and we want to know what you think about these bills, yeah. and we want to know what you think about um, how we do this, and and if this is the right way to do it. We just want your opinion on yeah. it. So, so I, I wouldn't even call these bills. I'd just call them legislative ideas to be used for bills. Is there so copy? there's bill title and then there's summary. We so let's go through the bill so, titles. So this one's a, you know, this one's a good one. University of Colorado, Colorado Springs known as UCCS who work with us on a lot of stuff, uh, military tuition assistance program. So the summary of this is to allow UCCS to be military tuition assistance eligible and the ability to charge 250 a credit for active duty military personnel with the intent of allowing more local active duty military personnel to choose UCCS as their institution of higher education. Um, this kind of gets into the weird tuition reimbursement for military active duty. Um, sometimes, you know, they only reimburse up to a certain amount, but everybody knows that it it costs a lot more than $250 a credit hour to go to school. So this would kind of up that to attract more students. And the person that wrote this, I, you know, UCCS is in the heart of Colorado Springs where you have Peterson, Shriver, NORAD, or NORTHCOM, whatever you want to call it, the, the Stargate base in the mountain. Um, <laughs> but Fort Carson, you know, there's a lot of military institutions in, in Colorado Springs. But I think you know, when we're talking about it, it's only like seven military people go there. I think there's more down at CSU Pueblo um, just because I, it's a little more affordable and accessible to them. 
Um, so this would kind of fix that. It would allow them to charge, you know, this certain amount for the credit. So it would encourage active duty military to go to UCCS specifically to UCCS. We thought initially it was going to be for higher ed, but going through the details, um, this is school specific with the full support of UCCS on this. And they're actually working on this right now as well. Um, we have another one. Um, this one's a, you know, local to Pueblo, uh, concerning Colorado commitment to funding and or supporting statewide tech hub economic development initiatives. This bill designates the creations of well-developed plan to demonstrate equal or proportionate funding and or support to all communities in Colorado for a tech hub and a tech hub initiatives. Um, and this was part of the chips and science act of 2022, that um, basically encourages regional technology and innovation hubs. Um, this idea kind of came from, you know, we have this in, in Colorado, but it all seems to be Denver-centric where there are other areas of opportunity and growth throughout the region, i.e. Pueblo. Um, we have the chemical depot in Pueblo Plex that's shutting down that has some opportunity to bring in some research and development, manufacturing, that type of thing. So this really kind of, gets it out more into Colorado as a whole, as opposed to just stuck in Denver. Um, and, and actually I think Grand Junction is doing a great job of this, um, right now as well. So when we look at some of these tech hubs, it's, you know, Denver, 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 and then Grand Junction, we want to see like Denver, Grand Junction, Durango, uh, Pueblo, Trinidad, you know, these areas kind of spread it around because we have the resources here. Um, this one's, uh, one of my favorite and, I believe the attorney general, Phil Weiser, he actually echoed the concerns of this. And then um, the person told him that's what they were working on. And he's like, this is amazing. So this is uh, creating mental health support for rural area public safety departments. This bill requests funding assistance for rural area public safety departments to allow mental health professionals to work alongside them, as well as to facilitate training for employees on how to recognize and deal with mental health crisis of those they work with, as well as their own personal trauma. Um, it's a funding bill. It's We don't have the resources. Um, we need this funding because as we're seeing specifically post-COVID that you know, and this, whether you're on one side or the other's argument, you know, there's this push to put a mental health professional or a social worker with police when they go on certain calls. This basically expands on that and creates a funding mechanism to support this, but not only for, say, the police going to a call, but also for the police, firefighters, EMT, first responders themselves. So this is something that's being talked about a lot. This is something that we've never really considered until recently. Great bill. Uh, the attorney general, again, he was, he was saying exactly how this was written. Uh, there's a lot of details on this, but I, I think that's good, positive. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorites as well. I have to say it's, it's one of the things that we always talk about that needs to be done, yep. but we're not really making it a priority. I appreciate that one a lot. So here's another one that this one I really like. And I think out of all these, this might have a, I can't see anybody not supporting this other than for financial reasons. Uh, concerning increasing healthy outdoor opportunities for Colorado veterans. Colorado is an unfortunate national leader in veteran suicides. Veterans and active duty service members account for 20% of all suicides in Colorado, despite veterans only making up 9% of the state population. 
This bill would provide alternative healthy opportunities for veterans to take advantage of the beauty and outdoor recreation that our state has to offer. The bill provides a 50% discount on all hunting and fishing licenses, permits and stamps to all honorably discharged veterans who are Colorado residents in order to promote health and wellness through outdoor recreation. The interesting thing about this one is New Mexico already did this. They did this in 2015. So if you're a veteran, Honorably discharged veteran active duty, you get a 50% discount on hunting and fishing license. Um, the the gentleman that works with this, um, he works with veterans. He works uh, both in the education field and veterans court. So those veterans that get in trouble, they get to go through veterans court. And it basically says, you know, they, they go in front of a court. Uh, the judge sees them and says, you know, a lot of this these problems – this criminal nefarious activity is directly related to your problems and um, disability as a veteran. Like, I don't want to say disability or problems, but, you know, drinking, violence, domestic violence. Um, actually, I don't think they cover domestic violence in veterans court, but I could be wrong. But anyway, they're getting in trouble. They're messed up from being a veteran, PTSD, um, trauma, that type of thing. And it says, we're not going to push you through the legal side. We're going to do this and we're going to help you and you have to agree to go through help, go through this program. And then once you go through all this and get the resources you need, then this will not be on your criminal record. Now, if you mess up, then it goes on your criminal record. Keeps a lot of people out of jail. I mean, one one dude, he had like seven DUIs in like a short time frame and it turned out he had shrapnel in his brain. Um, never went to the VA. Uh, he totally changed his personality, became very reckless, uh, drinking a lot of drugs. And by going through veterans court, they identified that he had a severe brain injury, traumatic brain injury, and they helped him. And now I think he's going back to school to be a social worker. So he so, had shrapnel in his brain. Yeah. He got out. Drinking. Never went to the VA. He got, and I know him, I grew up with him, uh, and it wasn't the veterans court here in Pueblo. This was a different one. Uh, he basically got two DUIs in one day. What? Yeah. He, he got a DUI, went to jail. They did everything and they let him out. And then he went straight home and drank and got another DUI. But, but he had shrapnel in his brain. How did the veterans court finally figure that out? Or well, he they, wasn't originally in veterans court. No, he was in veterans court, not the one here in Pueblo, but through going, Going through veterans court, he had to agree to go to the VA and mm. and they require that you seek treatment and services that are provided and available to him. And that's when he finally signed up for the VA and they went in and they found like, oh, shoot, you have a brain injury that's pretty bad. I think it was, I don't know if it was in his brain, but it was like pushing on it and it was causing some problems with this frontal lobe. But that, sorry to go on a tangent, but, no, that's but this important. Um, and I, and I don't, I could say his name, Hakobo. Um, he mentors these veterans that go through veterans court and he also mentors veterans that are going through higher education. So in doing that, he takes some fishing, um, hunting sometimes I'd imagine, uh, you know, takes them out, shows them some positivity, gets them out of the funk, gets them outdoors. So he thinks that this would be great. It would encourage more veterans to go get their fishing license, uh, go get their hunting license because they all love to hunt. 
and this would just encourage that, which does provide for their mental health. Now, the UVC has a different priority with this. They want to do, I think it's five days of free camping allowed to all 100% disabled veterans. So that's their way to approach this. Uh, we're, we're advocating for that from the UVC standpoint, saying if you're 100% service-connected, you get to go camping this many days a year in a state park for free. So That's cool. That's a good one. Um, this one is an act creating a study of the feasibility of energy security technologies in rural Colorado. I'm actually going to read the details of this one. Yes, it's not please. Too long, I was going to say this is complicated. The, yeah, and this is but a, it's, it's actually it excellent. Makes sense. It makes sense. But yeah, read Colorado it. residents are increasingly transitioning from propane and natural gas, ding, 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 what we just said, appliances in their homes to electric, both in response to regulations and out of a concern for personal and public health. This transition is more difficult in rural areas of Colorado where reliable, safe electricity is not always readily available. Running expensive high-voltage transmission lines to rural frontier and mountainous Colorado regions, that's another important line in this, the rural frontier, frontier communities. That means you're living out in the middle of nowhere. Is not a cost-effective proposition for utility companies, so the communities and residential homeowners in those regions are left with few options for power. These residents deserve energy security and independence as much as any other Coloradoan. Oh, and I put a typo in there. I'm finding typos as I'm reading these. They got to go back and fix. <laughs> the funny. act creates a feasibility study for energy security technologies that can be utilized by rural Coloradoans, including but not limited to residential solar, residential wind, residential hydroelectric, residential battery storage, including emerging emerging renewable battery technologies, microgrids, hyper local utility cooperatives efficient off-grid systems, and any residential or microgrid systems that supplement the efficiency of residential or microgrid electric energy production. So basically, he, he, wants, a, he wants a study done to see how feasible it is to live off the grid. And part of that, we had some energy people that were going through the academy, and they're like, well, that's, you know, they're explaining that's not the way it works. But the more they dove into it, they're like, no, this is not – this is not saying I don't need to tap into the grid. Like even in the frontier areas, right. they are tapped into the grid. This problem is that grid or that delivery of power is not stable and they rely on propane tanks, you know, whatever. Um, this, the energy people said this is creating a redundancy. So this is a good study to show what is a redundancy as we read these stories going forward of say there's rolling brownouts in areas due to the electric grid being just overused, you know, too much electricity. Don't charge your electric car from this time to this time, as we heard in California, or don't turn on your air conditioner. Um, this just creates a redundancy. What if you can create a micro grid in these areas, or um, I forget how he worded it, like a micro co- cooperative with energy that provides that redundancy. It's like, hey, the grid's straining, but we're generating our own wind or solar battery storage that's you know, locked into four or five houses in this area. So, so um, okay, this is just my opinion. The um, The reason I like this bill is because, or I like this idea, um, is because if we were serious about transition mm-hmm. and we are serious about just transition, um, that we that gets that term gets thrown around a lot. We would have already been doing this. Yeah, and we've I, already been doing this, and it's not. There's not a lot of thought given to how do we transition 
these rural communities. It's yeah. a one size fits all. Yep. Do it here and we'll do it. That's everywhere it should be. It's back to the bill that we're going to get about um, yep. no gas. No gas. And it's like, are you, f- how? Yeah. See, this is me editing. But this would, this would be a good, see, this would have been, this, the, would be good. this should have been the approach that was from the taken, beginning. Yeah. From the beginning to help say like, you know what, we're, we get it. Like we're forcing this on you or creating these regulations, but maybe we should figure out a way to ease some of these areas or look out for them other than just do it all at once. To keep them covered. Yeah. And to create that redundancy. And, and, and alleviate burden while doing it. And here's another one. This is a trade school study, which this is something that we're actively talking to many groups about. So this is kind of going forward already, but According to the U.S. Census Bureau, nearly half of all Americans over the age of 25 still have no post-secondary education or training credential. The National Center for Education Statistics reports that these workers, on average, earn low hourly wages and have low weekly and annual earnings. The Colorado Trade School Study Act, and that's kind of what he wants to, the title of it, I Mm -hmm. put it as just trade school studies, but it's. Colorado Trade School Study Act aims to assess and explore the feasibility of establishing and supporting a high school program by which students can opt to become employed in one or more available trades, e.g. plumbing, heating, and air conditioning, electricity, carpentry, and welding. This bill recognizes the importance of vocational and technical education in preparing for the future workforce and addressing the growing demand for skilled labor in various industries. The proposed legislation mandates the formation of a specialized task Force consisting of state department heads from all Colorado university and community college systems, labor, insurance, commerce, and community representatives. This task force will be responsible for conducting a comprehensive study on the potential benefits and challenges of implementing trade school options in Colorado. There are high schools doing this right now. It's kind of a, a local thing or a, a local district thing. I know that we kind of got away from the shop class in school and, you know, no more welding and blah, blah, blah. But as the recently in, in the years, specifically with this concurrent enrollment where you can enroll in a community college while in high school, in fact, some students graduate with an associate's degree along with their high school diploma, we're seeing more and more students take advantage of that. And that's just here. So that's not everywhere in the state. I think that would be beneficial to study in other areas in the state. And that study could actually show how this works. I know there's multiple companies that there's people applying for jobs that aren't old enough to work at the company, but they have their certificates and degrees. Um, the unions are talking about some partnerships and apprenticeships with the high schools. Uh, they seem to be pushing that again, which is great. And I think with that concurrent enrollment with the community colleges, that just creates more opportunity where, Hey, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to go to college. Like, why don't I you know, why, why don't I look at a, a technical trade at least to cover it, cover me getting out and making some money. Now this sounds like very arrogant thinking, you know, pushing that on a high schooler or whatever. Cause I, I have a high schooler that just graduated <laughs> and she in no means would even consider this. And it's tough from being older and looking like, man, this makes sense as a high schooler. It doesn't. But I think that if you can show specifically with the unions and these apprenticeships, you know, if they're in the school and the community colleges, these welding classes, plumbing, whatever, and they say, hey, it's okay, you don't know what to do, but here's a way to make some money right out of high school. The training, you can do it. It's easy. Kids learn way 
more quick than adults do when it comes to this stuff. Um, and that some of the, the union people, I was talking to one of the union guys, he brought it up. He's like, he's like, you know, we have people that come through and join the apprenticeships and, you know, work for the union and go on to become engineers. You know, this isn't like you graduate high school, you're a plumber and that's all you're going to do the rest of your life. It's kind of like, no, let's make some money and think about this and work out in the industry in the field. And, you know, I could always go to college later. No, I love, I love this one. Um, and we know who, um, Daniel did a great job on this one. And to your point, uh, I, my, my friend Mike Ham and I have been talking about this a lot lately because they have a really robust where that you can be getting you can for the IBEW you can be working right now. Yeah. yeah. And and getting your apprenticeship and and he also said well, you'll you'll see a lot of especially if they're younger you'll see them go on to get their engineering or you'll yeah, go on to yeah. see them and either they can go um, into work for somebody else or they can start their own. Yeah. Um, company. These are, this is the, that's the future of how workforce is going to go. It's kind of how it used to be when we were getting out of high school, you saw shop class going away and and a lot of this, but I I do remember, you know, in middle school, we built sheds. Yeah. I I mean, we learned how to build a shed and then they sold the shed and then we got the money for it. You know, I mean, this is like seventh and eighth grade. We were, yeah, you were building money, building a shed. We did the same thing. And then it just kind of, again, just education went away from that. Go to college, go to college, go to college. No matter who you were, you needed to go to college. Just be a lawyer. And then after that, it went. Ironically, this bill was written by a lawyer. (laughs) It was written by a lawyer. (laughs) Um, True. But this is, this is really important. Yeah. So this one, this is a tough one. And well, let me just, let me just say this one. Um, we've recently seen, cause when she, she first started to talk about this, we were kind of like, uh, about it, but it's addressing a need and it's been all over the news yeah. lately about what really goes on in this arena and I say arena because it's a battle. So this is prevent financial abuse of children welfare uh, to prevent financial abuse to either par- party, mother or father, for the purpose of providing for the children. So this is where, and I'll read some of the details because it, it explains it a bit, but parties are using the judicial system to financially bankrupt the party who provides for the children. Interest of the children is not taken into consideration. So basically you're going through a divorce and there's a custody battle and one side has more money than the other side and they drag it on until the other side does not have money. And that's causes many problems. Um, there was a bill, it was house bill 23 dash 1159, that did not pass this last session that was going to basically study how often this takes place because there's no data on this, but everybody that listens to this has a friend or family member that's going through a divorce and a custody battle. Um, You know, I did personally, I have family that did this too. And it literally like he had to take out loans. He's paying off loans right now that are in the tens of thousands because do that. His, the other side, the other party in it had way more money than him. And, you know, it worked, worked out exactly how it was proposed at the beginning. It took a year and a half and about $60,000 to get to the same point. But that was the tactic being used. It was like one side had way more money. And they're like, we're just going to drag this out and make you throw money on it and disagree with everything. 
and it it almost broke him. And luckily, he had the support to pay for this and had the good credit to take out loans, and then now ruin his credit later or ding his credit. Well, and we saw this. What the um, the issue that was in the news is that there was a, um, a not a very professional. Um, you can you can look it up. Um, that uh, was this. Um, parental assessment to, you know, somebody, they send somebody in, you have to pay so much, send somebody in, they decide whether you're a good parent or not. Yes. And you have to pay for all of this stuff. Well, this person was ultimately fired and is no longer in the state um, because of the, the very poor practice um, of, and how they, and how they did that. But those people have to turn around and start over now. And come yeah, up and with, it's not cheap. It's, it's not like, cheap. It's all told, just that part of the process was going to be about twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, so that it's it's again, it's a heartbreak. It's heartbreaking. It's um, kind of the envir- environmentalist tactic where you know they can't get a law passed, so they just litigate till the problem goes away. They yeah, outspend, outspend them, outspend the yeah, um, exactly. This is a, a messaging bill which I love, which probably I mean. We know that this probably won't go anywhere, but it's concerning the creation of a task force to study impacts legislation has on rural Colorado communities. <laughs> so, and I love this. This we is like my favorite it. one. The bill yeah. creates a task force to study disproportionate adverse effects legislation has on rural communities. The bill directs the state to assign a task force to conduct a study evaluating the impacts and costs imposed on rural local governments, businesses, associations, and citizens by legislation. So basically, this is what Action 22 does All day the in time. and day out. It's like, <laughs> y'all Denver people are crazy. It's going to cost me $20,000 to install an electric furnace in my house and I don't Which have that money. Which isn't actually going to make any difference yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, no, I... I'm I'm a big fan of this bill. It's a messaging bill. And it's a messaging bill. They're never going to do it. They're never going to say, "Oh yeah, let's actually stop." Um but that's but that also keeps us yeah. doing what we do cuz we're the ones that have to scream, but um boy would I love there to be a task force and I would love to chair that task force. Yep. So this one it's a simple one. I don't even want to talk about it because I don't know enough about this. I know just enough to ruin this another lawyer yeah rent by lawyer concerning time limitations on conditional water rights this bill limits the period of time an applicant can ha- can prove reasonable diligence for a conditional water right to two periods of reasonable diligence in addition to crs 37-92-3014a which limits the ability to file for a finding of reasonable diligence for a conditionally decreed water right to two periods 12 years of reasonable diligence. Following those two periods of reasonable diligence, a conditionally decreed right will be presumed abandoned. The abandonment of the conditionally decreed right can be appealed to the decreeing water court for a finding of substantial diligence in the pursuit of perfecting the conditionally decreed water right, allowing for an additional six-year period to pursue the right upon a finding of substantial diligence by the appropriate water court. Mark my Water nerds. My, my, mark my words, not my, mark my nerds. Mark my words. This person in 12 years is going to be a wildly important um, voice in the water, Colorado water law world. Um, this, if you don't know this, you don't know. But this 
<laughs> this would solve a whole lot of problems. Um, and I don't think that there's a single legislator, maybe one legislator, that would understand this enough to pick this up. So we're going to be. And I think with them that legislator that. would be opposed to this. I know you think that. I, I know this legislator is opposed to this. I know, but it's so, actually a but super it's, it's, good it's idea. A good, yeah, um, but yeah, that's, we could spend five hours talking about what this means, and, and nobody would actually know what we were so, saying. Um, this is one CCI is kind of pushing something similar. It's to help code enforcement keep property values up. State statutes have a penalty fee of only $100 per day at this rate for a simple trash violation. I am right in between not taking the county serious and the county not being able to take it to court because it is a simple trash violation. I have to reword that. I propose to raise the violation fee from $100 a day to $500 per day for a offense per offense. So people will either comply on their own or give the County enough money to enforce a violation report. Basically this is written from a code enforcement guy. Um, a lot of the counties and municipalities agree with this. It's like they can't impose a fee that would completely impact, like they won't pay it and it's not worth going through court to go after them to get that fee. And the people's property just gets trashed like weeds and trash piling up. So this would just give them the ability to raise this, to make it financially viable to go take them to court to get this. And also, um, you know, possible more fines, even jail time. But we're looking at houses and communities that are just trashed and the owners are doing nothing about it. And the fine is so minute, they don't pay it. And the County or city's not going after them. Um, and because it's just not worth it. Yeah. And then there's a blight. Um, Pueblo really, we had a city councilwoman that won based off of this, um, based trying to do something about yeah, blighted homes. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're working on it here. It, there's a little work that's been done, but it, we're still not there yet. Um, this is the shortest one, um, sales tax exemption for textbooks. This bill seeks to eliminate <laughs> sales tax collected on all textbooks aimed at lowering the overall cost of higher education. All textbook sales will be exempt from state sales tax. Textbook is defined as any published work required by a course instructor that is deemed necessary to complete a subject's coursework. <laughs> so we need to put a name on this one. That put is, a name on this one. Oh, that's Nicholas DeSalvo. He's been on the show before, uh, CSU student body president. He had a few ideas, um, one of which would have had to go through the voters to, um, I forget what it was. It was a 0.1% increase in tax in taxes to pay for some of the costs of school to lower the cost of education down. This one would just make textbooks exempt from sales tax, which you don't think is a lot of money, but when you're spending upwards of $5,000 on textbooks per semester, you know, it's some depending on what you money. do. Yeah. yeah. I, I forget that in one of the other ones, it says how much, but you know, textbooks for a class can range from $300, you know, on up. And if you're saving, 500 bucks a year on that's 500 bucks a year. They, I know they like to politicians specifically, you're going to save money off of this $27 this year. Yeah. I mean, you would actually <laughs> see a difference if you're not paying sales tax on textbooks. Yeah. Um, this is a really good one. Um, and, and I'll say his name is Jason Munoz um, here in Pueblo, who, if you're in the political arena, you've seen him around and he's, he's, been around a long time and he does good work and he volunteers and he's involved with a lot of stuff. But on the other side of that, he's very involved with the film community 
Um, I think he's on the Pueblo, it's the Pueblo film something, something board. So they're trying to bring film festivals to Pueblo, but he had this idea and, and I love this. And this has actually been thrown around quite a few times in the legislature over the years. Mm-hmm. It's concerning the improvement of incentives for film and television productions in Colorado and making an appropriation. The act increases the percentage of qualified rebates for approved film, television, and media projects from 20% to 30% for most projects and begins to build the rebate fund to a cap of $100 million over the next five years. It is estimated that for every dollar allocated in rebates, $18 will be generated in the economy and is estimated to have a potential economic impact of $1 billion in annual sales. A maximum rebate of up to 35% is possible for projects that occur in some rural counties. So if anybody doesn't know, they used to film, they filmed a lot of cool movies here in Colorado, um, just here in Pueblo and down in the valley. You know, you got Indiana Jones house from uh the, la- the last crusade you have vacation um, yeah family vacation um there was let's see he actually put includes in yeah indiana jones the last crusade national lampoon's vacation true grit um they were produced in rural colorado so they're actually produced here another one that he didn't put in here that i i think i'm going to add is the hateful eight um one story about that they filmed it up i think in telluride um so that was a tarantino movie and there was a tire shop there and I knew the owner of the tire shop. I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere. He's not doing any business. Everybody that goes to Telluride has nice cars and tires. Sure. You get a flat every now and then and he can fix it, but he was struggling to make it. And when they were filming the hateful eight, uh, the whole cast and crew, they needed snow tires because in Colorado, you have to have snow tires to go over the mountains and passes. It's required by law. And they went in, and I think they wrote them like an $800,000 check just to provide snow tires for the entire cast and crew. Saved his business. And yeah. the reason for that is because they were filming scenes from The Hateful Eight and Telluride. So this, I think you would see more of this. I think that there's some really great opportunities in the Action 22 area to do some movie work. New Mexico does a really good job. They Every- They make it... Every damn movie that you see and it says they're in Colorado is filmed in New Mexico. In New Mexico. Like, what what movie was it? It was uh, Beer Fest. Like, they're like in in a Colorado town and you look at it and it's like, that's New Mexico. That's New Mexico. Or, um, oh my gosh, um, I can't think of it, but it was a whole series and it was supposed to be happening in Colorado. And it was always in New Mexico. New Mexico. Well, Mexico does a better job. There's no reason we can't do a better job. Or Canada. There's a lot of, a lot, a lot lot of stuff is in Canada. Uh, I think, uh, was it Stargate was filmed in Canada and they said it was Colorado Springs. Yes. Um, going back to that it was, Stargate no, it was always on the rainy show. Every, for every episode yeah. they were outside. It was rainy and it was clearly. It's kind of like when you watch a movie and they say they're in Washington, D.C. and there's skyscrapers and there's absolutely no skyscrapers in D.C. <laughs> um, this is uh, th- this one. This one makes total sense, but it would change so much that I don't think that they would do this at least not right away, but um, to allow an alcohol establishment for food trucks. Now why this is important or why, why she brought this up is that anybody that's owned a bar or anybody that's held a liquor license, it's tied to a physical location that doesn't move around. 
you can only own one liquor license in Colorado. So if you have, if you have two bars, you can only one own one of the liquor license and somebody else has to get the liquor license for the other liquor license are finite. So there's a certain amount that the state and the counties and the cities give out. Um, so it is capped, but what this would do would allow for a liquor license on food trucks. So concerning permitting a retail establishment to serve alcohol at a mobile place of business or a food truck. So say you have a food truck, you want to serve booze, you have to go through the locale, the locality, apply for a temporary permit. So we're going to have a festival. I want to set up my food truck. I want to serve beer with it. Like the Chili Fest, I have to go through the local board and the state and say I want uh, a liquor license for these three days. You go through the process, pay the money, takes a long time, and they could say no or whatever. But that process is set up. What this would do would, would allow for a food truck to own a liquor license. So they don't have to go through that process every time they want to serve alcohol. So say, you know, you're at the chili festival and then you want to go to the fair right now, you have to apply for two permits for it. Now you have a liquor license. So you could go to the chili fest. You could go to the fair. You could go down to another County where they allow alcohol. Now this, this still leaves it up to the local, the, the local government because they, it does have to be an established area where they could serve alcohol, all this stuff, but it, it would just, make it so you could serve alcohol out of a food truck. Food trucks are like wildly popular now festivals mm-hmm. and pulling up. And, and this is good. The other side of it too, is we allowed during COVID the delivery of alcohol or to go cups of alcohol that's sealed. And that, I brought that up and like, what if it's, what if it's a food truck and you can serve like a margarita and it's sealed? So that the issues you get into, it's like, you don't want to have a food truck giving people beer and they're just walking around illegally drinking beer or alcohol. But if it's a sealed container, you get a meal, you get that. And then they could walk to an area where they can drink it. So, um, but I, I think the, the complicatedness of liquor laws in Colorado right now, this would be a tough one, but it makes total sense. And I could see them actually, as this grows up as an, economic incentive um this could actually happen and i think and i could be wrong but this was brought up last session and some of the industry was talking about it and the department of revenue was talking about it too because mm-hmm. on top of that um the government makes more money there's more tax base you know um you get a sandwich from a food truck you're paying 7.99 you get a beer you're probably going to pay 10 bucks so look at the tax base going up on that there you go so last one, this is uh this is an interesting one too. This is a messaging one and I will not say who wrote this and I don't e- don't even know if this person would like to go forward with this, but I'm throwing it out there. In fact, I might redo this and just take the name off take of this. Take the name off yeah, of it. Yeah. So when I, when I send these out, when the board reads these, I'm going to take this name off of it. Um, prior legislative action note by legislative council concerning a requirement that the LC staff produce a prior legislative impact note for legislative matters. I'm going to read the details of this. The bill creates a new prior legislative impact note that identifies bills introduced in the previous five years related to the subject of the bill being introduced and summarizes the results for each bill. The legislative council staff will draft legislative impact notes for each bill being introduced during the session. The legislative staff council should consider any prior bill for inclusion in that note that is identified and submitted by a city, county, statewide organization or organizations representing a trade or industry or labor organization as a related bill. Basically, we see this every year. It's like, well, and I would take this a step further. So they're talking about a bill. So it's like, Oh, we're going to introduce this bill. Introduce this bill. It failed. 
next year, we introduce the same bill, it fails. They just keep doing it till it passes. So they got the votes or the political stuff turns. Right. But, but I think this would be more effective and important if it was, if this was already voted down by the voters. So this went to a statewide ballot vote. So we and could then, think about and now stuff. and it, it was, it was voted down. So now they're going to try to run it through the legislature, which we have seen happen multiple so times. many times. Like we've seen things go up to the, to the actual voters and they're strongly opposed to it. And they totally voted down like 90% no. And then the way the Turn political around. pendulum swings, like the next session, they're like, oh, well, the voters didn't want this. 90% of Colorado didn't want this, but we're going to make it a law anyway. We're going to make it a law, but we're just going to break it up into other pieces. Yeah. Um, and that would be really important. Um, the legislative services already says what's in place, but we even see this would even affect bills that, um, okay, we're going to introduce this bill that would change um, a that would effectively change a bill that's happened in previous years. The ink's not even dry. It's not even being implemented yes. yet, but we're going to go ahead and change it again. Yes. So that's the other piece of that, it that yeah, we see other, a, a lot of too. Yeah. It's like, well, this has to be done by 2070. Oh wait, no, it has to be done by 2050. Now it has to be done by 2030. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and we all know what we're talking about ago. there, but it's, like, it's, it's also, passed. yeah, it's also, okay, here's this bill that passed in 21. It will be implemented in 23. And then in the 23 session, um, they're like, oh, no, we're going to do something different. And yeah. so those yeah. these things happen all the time. It's just part of the. It's like uh, this bill. Actually, this idea is going to like forced institutional knowledge, too. It would force institutional knowledge or at least the question. If you're brand new and you don't know, you have to ask the question. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm going to introduce this. And like, well, actually, they, we've tried that many times. And here's what happened. Okay. Well, you didn't do it right. So we're going to do it again. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the, that's the, group that's the package. This was, these are really, really good bills. We want to know which, yes, well, they're legislative ideas. They're not bills. They're legislative ideas. So if you're a legislator and you want to talk a little bit more about some of these ideas, um, please let us know. I'm going to be sending these out to the action 22 legislators and the, and the board. Um, The other thing that's interesting is um, if you're part of an advocacy organization and any of these bills are of interest to you, like Brian has already talked with the UBC um, and they're already going to pick up um, Commissioner Haas's. They they were already working on it. I mean, it just fits. What he wanted is like, we're already doing this. And and that's the other thing. This um, helps have those conversations is we're already working on this. Okay, great. Now let's collaborate. Yeah. So, uh, I again this was the thing this was the the gold platinum piece to the academy for um for us and where we're sitting in the and the work that we do. Well, I think it just shows what people are concerned about in the area. So this is like I said it's a legislative platform or priorities kind of you know, non-political. That's the the other important thing. This is this not. Was, yeah. This isn't like the Republicans saying this is. These are our priorities, or the Democrats. This is like community members, people that are heavily involved with local governments and communities and nonprofits and organizations that say, "Hey, this is what's important to us. This is what we like to see changed or implemented." Done. Done. So we have a few things coming up. We want to tell you about, we're doing a little bit different format for the Action 22 annual meeting this year that's going to happen in October. Um, It is going to be a member expo. So that means 
Um, we usually have a bit of a TED Talk format, as you know, but this year we're going to um, turn that around and we're going to go back and um, we're going to have the members be exhibitors for every th- projects that they're working on. So in order to, to, you know, to sign up to do that, we'll be sending out um, stuff for you uh, to know exactly how you want to plug into that. And so this is the thing that's been weighing in my head and, and I keep thinking of it lately is, you know, when we look at these bills, all Coloradans, all our Action 22 members have important stories to tell. The reason it's important that they tell those stories is because it will influence or it informs decision makers on what really is happening. It's very, very easy when you're in Denver and you're in the Capitol or you're in these decision-making um, arenas to just have what's, you know, what's being poured in on you. And that's, you know, metaphorically, you're getting all of this information and you don't always hear that voice that's clear on the other side of the state. And so if we can tell, do a a really good job of telling these voice, telling these stories and then saying, here's what we need you to do. This is what we're looking at. And these are our priorities. I think it's going to make the whole state better. And as we had with Dave Young, um, who was on the show last time, talk about really working together. I think this is the right way to do it. So we're doing that. We're going to expand the format for the show. And um, we're not ready to tell you about all of that yet, but that's going to be really exciting. And it's going to have you more involved in the voice here on the show. Um, Action 22, of course, is the voice of Southern Colorado. And uh, it matters what you have to say. And so we, um, we're going to expand the show and we'll be um, telling you a little bit more about that in days to come. Um, and then by the time you hear this, uh, all we'll be looking at the event of the year that we get really excited about. It's not our event, but we love it and we'll be there and we hope to see you at the um, legislative barbecue, of course, that is hosted by the Greater Pueblo Chamber of Commerce. Um, and that is happening on the 25th. If you're hearing this and you haven't gotten your tickets yet, um, get your tickets straight away and you can do that by going to the Greater Pueblo Chamber website, but we will see you at the legislative um, at the legislative barbecue, but there's events going on all day oh, that yeah. day. We'll be, we'll be there. Um, it's hot and sweaty, but we get to see all of our, all of our favorite colleagues there. What else is happening coming up? State fair. The it's Colorado all the state fair. state fair. So, yeah. yeah. So I think you'll hear this Wednesday. So the day after tomorrow is when the state fair kicks off and all that fun stuff. And we'll have a good date for you on the action 22 annual meeting and expo. It should be, either the very beginning of October or the very end of October, but we'll, we'll, by the time you hear this, there will be a date to it. And, and so I'll put, and it, I put, I'll put it down here. Just read in the, read the it comments. in there. Um, but the reason it's taking us is because the venue is really cool and completely unexpected where yep. we're going to do it this year. So that's why we're, it's taken us a little bit longer than normal to say where that's at. Um, so action 22, the, the views and opinions expressed, <laughs> On making action happen (laughs) are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Action 22 board or its members. (laughs) We have to put that proviso in every time for obvious reasons. Um, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. 
We're going to turn the stalker stuff back on and say it's really cool to see um, you working on expanding in uh, the STEM program. We we love the STEM program, and we know that you're going to deliver that um, more effectively to some rural communities, and we can't wait to see all that you're going to do with that. Um, anything else before we go? That's it. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. All right, bye. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.